Welcome to the dough, where Cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Hi, I'm Claire Bidwell-Smith. Welcome to New Day. Okay, guys, today we're going to talk about death. But for those of you who are ready to hit the stop button because that sounds like a huge bummer, let me ask you to hang in there with me for a minute. Our culture is really, really afraid to talk about death. And maybe that's because it's scary. We don't know what happens when we die. We don't know when we'll die. We don't know how we'll die. There's so many huge unknown things and even trying to contemplate them feels like it can spin you into an existential crisis. So we just don't think about it. We don't talk about it. But I wanna fill you in on a little secret. Talking about death actually helps us stop being so afraid of it. And talking about death actually helps us want to live more. I bet you're nodding your head right now like, okay, maybe. But you're also like, um, how and when am I going to talk about death? And with who? And that's where my guest comes in today. She's the most perfect person to help answer these questions. Elua Arthur is a death doula, which means she's someone that helps people face the end of life. Sounds fun, right? She actually is one of the most fun people I've ever met, and I swear it's because she thinks about death and faces it every day. Before we jump into my chat with Elua, I want to tell you a little story about how I met her. Several years ago, when I was in private practice in Los Angeles, a woman came to see me in my office. She was nearing the end of a long struggle with cancer, and she told me that she wanted me to help her figure out a way to say goodbye to her son. It turns out that her son was the exact same age as my daughter. And in the most random twist of fate, it turned out that her son was actually in my daughter's elementary school class. It wasn't just that they were in the same school, but they were in the same class. And even though this woman and I had never met, our kids were friends. Now, as a therapist, and particularly a grief therapist, I sit with a lot of hard stuff day in and day out. But this, this was one of the hardest things I'd faced. Having lost my own mother young, I've been worried for a long time that I might also have to say goodbye to my kids at a young age. So here was this woman sitting across from me, living a parallel life to me, and asking me to help her with my greatest fear. I knew that I couldn't trust myself to help her without getting some help myself. But where do you even start to get help with this kind of thing? One thought popped into my head. I need to find a death doula. Death doulas were a relatively new thing at the time. They still kind of are. 
but I'd heard of them and I knew that finding one would probably be really helpful. So I sat down with my laptop and I typed in Death Doula Los Angeles in my search box and this woman, Elua Arthur, popped up right away. I sent her an email and a few weeks later we were sitting down to lunch. And what was going to be a quick meet and greet turned into a two-hour lunch, which turned into a really deep friendship. And I can tell you that Elua has taught me more about life than I ever could have imagined. In today's episode, you're going to hear us talk about death, yes, but also why it's more important than ever to talk about it post-pandemic. We're going to laugh a lot because we adore each other, but we're also going to talk about George Floyd, about how to cope with hopelessness, and we're going to dig into the questions you can ask yourself to face your own fears around death. And I swear it's not going to be depressing. This might actually be one of the most life-affirming conversations you've ever heard. Welcome, Elua. I'm so excited to have you here today with us. I'm excited to be with you, Claire. So let's dig into this big, scary topic of death. But as we do that, what is that saying you're known for? Can we start with that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it's mine. But it goes like talking about sex won't make you pregnant and talking about death won't make you dead. <laughs> and I mean, really, people are afraid to talk about death for so many they reasons. Are. But I think this might be one of them, this idea that it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring it on. Yeah. And what I keep saying then is it's happening anyway. It's coming. Talking about it won't make it come any faster necessarily, but it's going to happen. It's happening to all of us. We're all living and all dying all the time. Okay, so that that we've we've established. We're going to talk about death today. It's going to be scary and awesome. Is this what you imagined doing when you were growing up? No, <laughs> by no means. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Okay, so there's a number of things. I remember being about five years old, and we went to a private school in Nairobi, Kenya. And most of the kids in that school started in kindergarten and went all the way. And so they'd have the kindergartners write down what it was that they wanted to be. And I wrote down that I wanted to iron for some reason. <laughs> I I watched my mom iron a lot and I thought it was like the coolest thing. It was probably also kind of dangerous. So it was like, you can't do that. But that's the thing I wanted to do. Surprise, surprise. Of course. And now I'll do anything to stay away from any clothes that have that require any ironing. But I wanted to iron. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a lawyer. My mom says that I just said I really wanted to help people. I really wanted to help people. And then at some point I decided I was going to be Michael Jackson's wife. And that was all I need to do with awesome. my life. I know, right? <laughs> that didn't turn out quite the way that I thought that it would. And then at some point, I think I just shifted into the helping profession somehow. I wanted to do social justice. I became a vegetarian early. I started recycling drives before they were popular. I was really down for the HIV and AIDS activism, all before ideas of what a professional life could be out there. But no, I never planned to be a death doula. It still shocks me. So how did this happen? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> but there's got to be a story. I know that I know there's a story. There is a story. There's a story. So I was practicing law at legal aid, really depressed and not using all parts of myself. It was not my highest expression of self. The work was so fulfilling, but other parts of me still felt unused. And I was kind of swimming in this ocean of not knowing, swimming in this ocean of a body. I wasn't fooling it up. I wasn't like getting the most out of myself and what I thought was capable for my life and grew terribly depressed. And I went on a medical leave of absence for clinical depression, which is totally unheard of for lawyers to actually take a break. But I had to because of how sick I was. I had no choice. 
I had no choice. I couldn't go back to work. I could barely eat. I was 50 pounds less than I weigh now, and I'm still pretty fit. But then I, I wasn't eating. I was wearing all black. You know, I'm in all the colors in the world today. Just it wasn't working out. And somewhere along the line, I went to Cuba, where I met a fellow traveler on a bus who had uterine cancer. And we got to talking a lot and grew very intimate in the way that you only can with a stranger in a faraway country on a bus. And we talked a lot about her life and we talked about her death. And I started asking her questions about what happens if this disease that she's got kills her. And she'd never had those types of questions posed to her. She hadn't thought about what her death might mean. I'm sure she had thought about it plenty, but she hadn't had opportunity to talk about it. Every single time she'd talk about death and dying, people would say, oh, don't worry, you're going to get better and just have hope and you have surgeries coming up and there's treatment. And people just seemed to deny the fact that one day she was going to die and that this disease might be what did it. That made me really sad for her as an individual. It also made me really sad for society overall. You know, looking around the bus, I was looking at the bus driver and the people on the street and myself and thinking, we're all going to die one day. Now, why do we pretend as though it's not happening? I just, I couldn't get my head around it. And so on the bus, I got pretty clear that I wanted to support people in their conversations around death and dying. Did you at that time know what a death doula was? Was that kind of what no you were idea. thinking about doing or you, it was a vague idea of if you wanted to be in that realm? It was a specific idea that didn't have any context. I thought to myself, there should be somebody that walks people through and prepares them for death. Because we talked about all types of things. We talked about her career. We talked about her love life. We talked about her desires for family. We talked about her money. We talked about her stuff. We just went through all of it. Like, what happens? What happens if this is it? So I was clear that preparation for death needed to be a thing, not only the existential, but the practical. And then I came back to the States and threw myself into trying to find a way to make this happen. And I could not find a career path for it. I thought about going to medical school to become a doctor, but I was already $100,000 in debt from law school and no thank you. Uh, no, no loans, no more loans. <laughs> and I didn't want to be a funeral director. I applied to a master's program to become a uh, marriage and family therapist to talk with people that were dying, but that didn't feel like it. Um, so I just, I waited, I waited. And then my brother-in-law got sick. About six months after I came back from Cuba, he was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. And then about four months later, he was at the end of his life. The doctors couldn't do anything more to treat him. So I packed up. I went to New York where he and my sister and my four-year-old at the time niece were and walked him and them through the end of his life, essentially. How did you know how to do that? What do you mean? What did that look like at that time before you were an actual death doula? I can't tell you that I knew intellectually how to do it, but I will say that I knew instinctively how to do it. I think we all do. I think we all do. Just society and culture and mores and taboos get in the way. But it required me to fill in the gaps so that my sister could be in the hospital more. I ran a lot of errands. I asked a lot of hard questions. I remember at one point, he'd been in the hospital for about two weeks. He never left the hospital. And, you know, my sister asked me to step outside in the hallway with her. And very, very seriously, she looks at me and she's like, so I have to ask you a question, you know. What do you think is happening with Peter? And I was stunned because to me it was clear that he was dying, but it wasn't yet to her. You know, I think intellectually she just hadn't gotten her head around it. 
And I weighed very carefully, do I continue playing in to what has been happening so far, that nobody's saying Peter is dying, yet they're saying, you know, we don't have treatments and we could try this, but it's not going to shrink the tumors. But nobody was saying he's dying. And so I did. And she collapsed. She fell on the ground. She cried. I held her in that elevator bank and wondered if I'd made the wrong call, like if I should have lied. Um, but, you know, I just kept repeating that I was sorry. And eventually she says, why? You're not the one who's killing him. And then she strained her sweater and walked back into the room. And so do you feel like it was the right call to tell her that? I want to say yes. It It's hard recovering from seeing my sister in that much pain. Uh, certainly over words I've spoken, I know I didn't do it, but it was hard seeing her in that much pain. I think, I don't know what impact it had on our preparations for death. But I did feel like it needed to be said very, very plainly at some point. And the best person probably to say it would be me. I think it was so brave and important of you to say that. I sit on the other side of death with people who weren't told that by anyone, not Mm -hmm. by a family member, not by a medical professional. And so, and this happened to me with my own mother, your loved one dies and you didn't see it coming. They had no idea. And so now they're in my office trying to sort through the pieces of that and just overcome with guilt and angst that they didn't know that it was coming and that if they could go back and if they had just known, here are some things they would, they wish they could have done differently. And so, you know, so much of my work is sitting with them through that and trying to help them come to some kind of peace with it. So from where I sit, I think you made the right call. Thank you, Claire. You know, it's a hard concept to get your head around. And this is why it doesn't get said, you know? I mean, this is exactly why it doesn't get said by the doctors, by the nurses, by family, by ourselves. You know, sometimes we can't even tell ourselves. Absolutely. Sometimes we can't tell each other. You know, but in me and Peter's private moments, he was clear. He was clear he was dying. Uh, I brought him in for the day because the Patriots were playing the Broncos and he was a huge Patriots fan. We were Broncos fans and he asked me to bring my niece in. So I put on her little Patriots jersey, despite myself, because I want to put her in a Broncos jersey, but he was dying. (laughs) So it was the least I could do. Okay, that's a dying man's wish. I could do that. So I did. And he rallied and he was alert. Uh, It's often called terminal lucidity, Mm -hmm. where he was alert and awake and asking for food. And he seemed like his old self again. And as I was leaving, he said, I'm tired. Then I had to lean in real close. His vocal cords had tumors on them and he had a hard time getting um, noise out. But he said, I'm tired. And I said, okay, rest. No, but then he looked at me and said, I'm tired. Mm. Yeah. 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 He was ready to rest. Yeah. That's an incredible story. Um, I think, I think you're right that it is instinctive that we know how to do this, but oh my gosh, we also know how to run from it too. You know, (laughs) we're really good at that, but gratefully there's people like you that keep reminding folks that there is anything to fear there and you can be held while you're in the exploration. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we, we have to keep talking about this.
there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And each week we are sitting down to talk all about life's twists, turns, and absurdities on The Deep Dive. From exploring the depths of TikTok, which is our only news source, to navigating the complexities of grief and loss, we are just two best friends behind a mic processing life together. This podcast is all about finding the silver linings in the madness. So get ready for unfiltered conversations about motherhood, careers, pop culture, and everything in between. Here at The Deep Dive, we're all about community. We believe in the power of sharing experiences and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. So death doulas, I'm not even sure when this whole thing started, but I know that in the last year of 2020 in the pandemic, they really rose to the forefront. I mean, I remember seeing a picture of you as the headlining article on CNN.com one day. I was just checking the news the and I was like, what? <laughs> There's my friend Alua. And it was all the death hell, doulas. <laughs> so when did this start and what's happening now with death doulas? I think that as long as people have been living, people have been dying. And people have been supporting them through death. We don't do anything alone as humans. We're entirely interdependent. And death is one of those ways. It takes a whole village of folks to support and surround and offer, like, to hold somebody through the process. It's looking different now in the modern age because we have the internet and email accounts and a lot of choices for burial and ritual and religions. And we live in cities and not at home with the, with the family that we grew up in. Life has changed and death has changed. And so there are those of us now that have spent some time in this space. I'm not going to call us experts because I don't know anything about death. I haven't done it. I'm still here in this body. But what I do know is some of the ways in which people approach it. Now, I've gathered a lot of resources, information, and I can show up as a compassionate and knowledgeable person at the end of life for the individual and the family. I can usher them through. It's been around since time immemorial, but I think it's gaining a lot of traction now because we're getting a little bit better at having the conversation around death. And we also had a huge pandemic that put death and how we die in our faces. What was it like for you? What were you seeing? How did death look different here in the world or in the U.S.? Like, what, what was your perspective on it? You know, there was so much going on aside from our own individual grief over the lives that we led and the ones that we expected to keep living, there was also all the death that was occurring. And for the first time in a really long time, watching the news, you'd hear death counts, you'd hear about ventilators, you'd hear about how people were breathing, you'd hear about signs of the body. 
We were all hypervigilant about what symptoms we're having, if any. We're washing our hands. We're paying attention to how our body is with disease and illness and also with death. And it got people thinking about how they want to die. Nobody liked the idea of people dying alone and not being able to be around their family and friends. That was a big deal. That was such a hard part of last year and still. Huge. Huge. It's a huge part for me, too, because I felt challenged in my work. I'm so used to showing up for people when they're dying. What do you mean people have to die alone and nobody can be there with them? It broke me. It broke me. But I kept remembering that my job as a death doula is to support and empower the dying person and the family, which means that I can do my best to remind people that death is natural. And now we have an opportunity to redefine what death means to us as individuals and what it means to us as a culture. Yeah, I think that people saw death and thought about death in ways that they never had in this last year. I mean, you and I have been in this world for a long time, and it's our daily life to think about it and look at it right in the face. But so many people, I mean, I think about the frontline workers who were having to watch their patients not be able to say goodbye, you know, or or trying to do some kind of FaceTime call, you know, with the nurse and the masks and the, you know, the person on the other end and 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 having no experience with that, you know, having no preparation to go through that and 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 how to process that and no time to process it even. And like a high number of deaths that were happening. They were just seeing people come in and die over and over and over again. The incredible grief that they must be feeling. Also, on the heels of the beginning of that pandemic came the murder of George Floyd, where for, I'd say, one of the first times, millions of people watched a man die. They watched a grown man beg for his mom, foam at the mouth, mm. pee himself, and die. So I teach death doulas through Going With Grace, and there's an application process where we ask the students, what was the last death that you witnessed? We we use it for a number of things to try and gauge levels of grief and how close they are to a death. But one student who I believe got into the program wrote that the last death that she'd seen was of George Floyd. Mm. And it just reminded me that people were also really strongly reacting to that death one way or another. You know, some people were grieving out there on the streets and throwing things. Other people were grieving their family. Other people... Uh, pushed it off and pretended it didn't happen or it wasn't as bad as it was in whatever response to grief that they had. So we witnessed death in a way that we haven't in quite some time in this past year. Rocked some people. Yeah. What What was his death like for you? Maybe not obviously, but did not watch the video. I couldn't. I saw the image. Uh, it was all too familiar and could have just as easily been my cousins and my brothers-in-law and my nephew, and my heart was broken for his family and for the Black community as a whole because it's too familiar, but also for humankind as a whole because shit like that still happens. And some people don't understand the incredible grief that comes along with it. And I struggle to understand how one cannot suspend their own experience to honor the experience of another. That I may not understand that this feels like my brother, but I can see that you do, and this is really important to you. That was very difficult to grapple with. Hmm. Yeah. I think we did see people suspend their own experience and and feel that in many ways, but then we saw a lot of people who who didn't and couldn't. When you feel broken by things like that, 
What do you do with yourself? Like you personally, how do you move through these things? Oh, by not moving much at all. In grief, I do one of two things. I either sit very still and stare out the window and stuff my face with potato chips and French fries <laughs> and, uh, and I cry a lot or I move. I exercise a lot. I run, I bike, I lift. Uh, so one of two things. And during then I sat, I sat, I cried, I talked, I, I leaned into the pain as much as I could because at some point I couldn't either you know, and had to get to work. I sit at an intersection of Black people and the death and dying industry, which meant that a lot of people started asking me questions about Black people and death. And I was like, hold on, first of all, I don't know every Black person that's ever lived. <laughs> I watched you. It was admirable to watch from afar, but how did that go? You know, not long afterward, me and a few Black women I know who work in the death care industry had a conversation amongst ourselves. We were all saying the same thing. So we got together and made a panel called Saying It Louder, where we just, again, talked amongst ourselves, but invited other people to come and listen. And that seemed to have quite an impact. Uh, people seemed to understand what it was that we were saying, mostly around the themes of generational grief and trauma, how white the death and dying industry is, and most importantly, though, how inaccessible the idea of a good death is for many parts of society. The good death is largely shaped by the white experience. And we spoke very directly to that, which was useful. It was useful. And it was also cathartic on some level. Yeah, it was useful and cathartic. Um, I think we saw so much racial disparity illuminated in the healthcare system during the pandemic that was so good to look at, you know, so painful, but so important. And I'm not sure we would have seen it so starkly and abruptly had we not had the pandemic, had we not had George Floyd in the middle of it. You know, I think that all of those things lent to what I hope will be a lot of growth and changes. I hope so too. I hope so too. It just gets hard to hope sometimes. Yeah, let's talk about hope. I felt like last year, I felt hopeless at times. I felt like you felt hopeless at times. I know this because we we talked. And I think that a lot of people felt hopeless. What do we do when we feel hopeless? What do you do when you feel hopeless? You know, hope is such a fucked up thing. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful idea that keeps you striving and reaching for something that seems out of reach, right? But at the same time, it's also the thing that doesn't stop you to sometimes to force to reckon with what's actually happening. And I see it a lot in the end of life context. People are like hoping for a cure. They're hoping for a miracle. They're hoping for some big thing to happen that takes them out of the current experience they're having into something else. And while it's useful to have some hope, I often want it just to be a little redirected. Rather than hoping for a cure, maybe we hope that we live long enough to see our nephew graduate from high school. And rather than hoping that we don't die, we hope that we live a good quality life or we hope in the incremental. So during the pandemic and in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, I did not have a lot of hope for how us as a society was going to deal with race relations. I was on the streets 20 years ago when Amadou Diallo was murdered. Why are we doing the exact same thing 20 years later? And I'm older now. My feet are not trying to be out marching for 13 days as I did in my youth. But I found a lot of hope in the relationships I had with white people that were immediately in my circle. I had a white male partner at the time. I have a decent amount of white friends. And in the minute, in our day-to-day -day interactions, in the conversations that we had, the topics that we broached, 
the honor and respect and understanding that we're willing to bring to the conversation give me a lot of hope for how we can do it moving forward. I love that. I think that um, that's good. That's a good way to break it down just to make it more um, palatable. Is that right? The right word or just like little pieces, you know, that we can, that we can do. Bite size. Yeah. Yeah. Like a fun size Snickers. (laughs) Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and her A-plus guests on Wiser Than Me, laugh along with Elise Myers as she and her guests play a rapid-fire questions game on Funny Cause It's True, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's talk about, um, let's talk a little bit more about why when we look at death and embrace death, how does that help us live more fully? What is your question, your seminal question that you ask um, in your work and you ask of us who, who follow you? And I ask of myself all the time, what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may live presently and die gracefully? What must I do? What must not permissive, not what I really like to do, what would be cool to do, but what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may live presently and die gracefully? Is this a question you ask yourself every day or like every six weeks or (laughs) got a calendar alarm for this one? (laughs) I think it's so built into my operating system right now that it's constantly running in the background when I'm making decisions if it's whether or not I want to watch a movie or go out to dinner with somebody, what must I do? Live presently, die gracefully. Well, let's look at my values, big picture. Let's look at who I think I am in the world. Let's look at what my body needs at this moment. Like, what must I do? And sometimes it says, stay home and rest, girl. But sometimes it says, go live it up, go celebrate, go have a few drinks and a nice dinner, put on a pretty dress. Uh, but it changes. And I think it's important that we keep posing that question and questions of the similar sort to ourselves time and again, as we're changing and we're growing, like a new version of me requires a new answer. And let's stay graceful with ourselves also as we answer that question time and again. But it's built into my operating system now, just refreshing in the background. Yeah, it's uh, it's built into mine too. I think, you know, losing both of my parents so close together so early on, it just, 
you know, there was there was no going back from the idea that life is short and we must make the most of it. You know, what what do right. I want to do with my time here? So it's it's been refreshing in my operating system for almost 20 years, you know. Um, but for someone who hasn't gone through a big loss, can you feel the urgency of that question? Can you feel the weight of it? I think it's hard to do so when it's just an intellectual exercise because I also don't want to romanticize the idea of thinking about death. You know, it's not like, oh, you do it and everything's going to be amazing. You're going to know your purpose and you're going to have a great partner and you're going to be a more present, loving parent. It doesn't quite work like that. But I think it does incrementally in the small bit, at least invite us into that conversation, big picture. And so for somebody who hasn't experienced it directly, I'd say it's probably wildly important that you spend a little bit of time just considering your death. Think about yourself on your deathbed if you can. Yeah, I love your deathbed test. Tell us about that. I love that one too. So on my deathbed, is this decision I'm going to make? Will it matter in five minutes? If I were to die in five minutes, would this decision have mattered? If I was to die in five years, would it have mattered? On my deathbed, will it matter? Will it matter? Will I wish I did it? Will I wish I didn't do it? And does this range from everything from like going on a date to taking a new job? All of it. So wearing the sneakers versus the heels to go to a party in. I'm more of a sneakers to a party girl myself at this point, but at some point I used to be heels girl. Now let me explain. Not how I got from sneakers to heels. I think that's obvious in age, but rather <laughs> post. Yeah. We're the same age. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We're not doing that anymore. Um, but on my deathbed, a decision like this, like if I were to die tomorrow, am I going to wish that I showed up with like, you know, the sparkly pink heels on, or am I going to wish I was comfortable at this party? I'm probably going to wish I was comfortable. Okay. So let's look five years from now. If I meet the love of my life at this party, am I going to wish I showed up in heels or as I am right now? Well, I'm probably going to wish I showed up as I was right now. So you could find the true authentic me on my deathbed. Will it matter at all whether or not I wore heels to the party or sneakers? Not a bit. So I can actually wear whatever I want. It won't make a difference. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's that's perfect. Are you ever afraid to die? Yes. Say more. <laughs> okay. So I was in the shower a couple of days ago and had my body contorted in this way. I was trying to shave, but I had my leg up on something that it should not have been up on. <laughs> my razor was like on the other end. Rather than put my foot down and turn my body toward it, I just decided to like reach a little too far where I felt the foot that was stabilizing me on the ground start to slip. And I immediately was like, <gasps> not now. I still got things to do. I have this book to write. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Uh, it comes up like that sometimes. Also, when I think about my niece and my nephew not being able to see their futures, that really makes me very sad to die, not as scared. Um, and also when I think about the work that I've set out to do and wondering how close we're getting and not knowing how close we are to it, it makes me a little scared to die. So you want to be here longer. Are you afraid of death itself, like the actual act of dying? And are you, do you ever, like, what do you think happens when we die? I'm really curious about what death feels like. I'm really curious because they've been feeding us all types of things through centuries. It's true. Yeah. I want to know which one was right. <laughs> <laughs> all of the above, none of the above. Well, we'll find out something we can't even conceive of right now with our little human brains. Probably the latter. Probably the latter. I am hoping that death feels like this beautiful cosmic explosion 
of glitter and confetti in all different bits and pieces, every emotion I ever felt, every human I ever talked to, everything that ever made me laugh. I want to feel them all at the same time and explode all those experiences out onto all of humanity and have it settle in the spirit of everybody else. And thus I return as a part of all that ever was and all that ever will be. And I live on as you all will live on in me after your death. That's beautiful. I think I become afraid of death when I think about there being nothing after this, which I thought for a long time. But the older I get, I don't know. I like the idea now of of death being a transition and a continuation and that we're just born into something new, right? Yeah. I'm really curious. I'm really curious. I also wonder if some of those theories and ideas that we have about it not being over are an inbred fear of death, you know, because it's like, if there is more, that means that this doesn't end. But death necessarily says this ends. This, at least the way that I understand it, is going to end. I'm playing around with it. I don't know. None of us know. That's the point. None of us know. But I think a lot of the work is with sitting with it, you know, which is what you do, which is what I do, which is what we help people do. But we're not experts at it either. But it's this whole idea that we have to help people sit with all the uncertainty. I mean, it can be paralyzing sometimes to think about like, we're we're all going to die. And we don't know when and we don't know how. And we don't know what happens when we do like the fuck. (laughs) Yeah, it could. I mean, it can be absolutely paralyzing, like all the various scenarios under which I could meet my death because I make some interesting choices in my life. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Some very interesting choices. So not knowing that, it can like really drive one to madness and to, as you said, paralyzed in the decision making and living life and going on planes even, like taking flights and people are so scared to do so because of the fear of death. Yet we could also use it to fuel us and to motivate us and to remind us that death is one day coming. So I may as well make the very best out of this life that I can for whatever it means to me when I'm asking the question of myself, because it might also mean sitting on the couch. Eating potato chips. Eating potato chips. It does not mean live your best life, although that is some version of my best life for sure. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I think that shifting the the perspective where instead of feeling paralyzed, we use that fear, that same fear that paralyzes us to instead celebrate life and just use it as a way to celebrate life. And I think that y- you and I do that. And a lot of people that we know in this in this field do that. But it, it's hard one, you know, it's come from our a lot of our own losses, it's come from a lot of our own fears, a lot of our own pain and, and constantly showing up to face this over and over. Yeah. And I also want to say a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of work. I think that sometimes we can overlook how much intention and consistent awareness that has to be brought to it in order to start reaching some comfort with our death. You know, I've been talking about death and dying and how we do it for eight, nine years now, whereas somebody who's just newly into it might still even feel really pinchy at the idea that one day they'll die. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. As long as we're like starting to slowly creep into the conversation, we're doing great. Yeah. We're doing great. So what's like, what's, what are a couple small things that people can do to just make these little bite-sized moves into thinking about death, facing death? Ooh, well, really bite-sized one. And I really enjoy this exercise is from wherever you're sitting right now, take a look around and look at how many things are dead or dying or came from death. 
If there's a piece of paper in front of you, that used to be a tree. That tree had to die. If there's decaying spinach in the fridge, it's dying. And also don't forget your natural body while you're at it. Life thinking about your cycling and your aging and your decay because it's happening all the time. If people want a little bit of an advanced exercise, I'd say go into the mirror and look at yourself in the mirror and your eyeballs, like deep into the eyeballs. I look at that thing, that intangible thing that exists behind the eyeballs and repeat out loud, I am going to die three times. No ghost. Bloody Mary is not going to <laughs> I was gonna appear. Say. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't do it in a darkened bathroom during a sleepover when you're 13. <laughs> uh, but try it now. And lastly, uh, have a death meditation series through Going With Grace called Grace and Dying. It's a nine-part death meditation that you can do in your own home that walks people through the nine contemplations of dying, which were written by an 11th century Buddhist scholar named Atisha and developed for the modern age. And that is a useful tool for people who are starting to contemplate their own death and want some support around it, some journal prompts and exercises and contemplations. Amazing. That's on your website? Yeah, very easily accessible. And I think I just, you know, want to remind people when you're doing something like that, like looking in the mirror and saying those words to yourself, you don't have to be good at this. Like it can make you cry. It can make you angry. It can make you laugh. You know, whatever response you have as you start to take these bite-sized steps into facing this is the right response, you know, and, and it keeps shifting and growing, right? Absolutely. There's no death doula looking over your shoulder saying A plus or A minus. <laughs> and we're not judging people's deaths and their relationship with it either. You know, people are like, I want mine to be really good. And I say, well, what's a bad relationship with death necessarily? It's just a relationship. It's just a relationship. And so let's be with it, but also evolve with it. Let's evolve with it. Who knows? If I ever have a child, I might change my relationship to death then. When my parents die, I might change my relationship with death then. We'll see. Let's give ourselves grace in the exploration as well. Nobody's grading it. Mm, I love grace. You're always bringing in that that word, and I think that it is so important to this work. It's a solid one. Thank you so much, Elua. I can't ever feel grateful for my friendship with Elua without thinking of that client that brought us together. I ended up working with her for over a year. We got to know each other and even saw each other at the elementary school a few times. Her death was really sad, and it affected our whole community and the whole school. But I have to say that she really faced the end of her life bravely, and she helped her fourth grade son face it along with her. I also want to tell you that by the time she died, my daughter had actually become such good friends with her son that it was my daughter who sat next to him at his mother's memorial. I think my client taught all of us a lot about being present in our lives. And it always felt like more than a coincidence that she came into my life when she did. Because in the end, I did get to face my fear. And I even got to hold my daughter's hand as she faced it too. But trust me, I cried all kinds of tears through it. It was hard and it was scary, but it also left me astounded by life and connection and the human capacity for love. Okay, deep breath. That was a lot. But it's all a lot sometimes, right? So for this week's lesson, I want you to think about Elua's main question. What must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may live presently and die gracefully? It's a big question. 
and one that may take you some time to answer. To start, let's think about where Elua was before she answered this question for herself. Are you stuck in a job where you're not fulfilled? Are there talents that you're not using? Or as my mother-in-law says, are you hiding your light under a bushel? Are there conflicts you need to resolve? Are there relationships that need to go? Do you belong to something beyond your basic commitments, like a writer's group or volunteering in the community? Are there things you dream about doing but haven't made any steps towards? Okay, I just threw a lot at you. So maybe you need to think about it for a few days or weeks. Maybe you need to journal about it or talk to someone, like a friend or a therapist. Maybe you already know the answer. If you want to dig a little deeper on all of this, I really recommend following Elua on Instagram at Going With Grace. She poses really thoughtful questions every day. She also has this amazing online course with her mortician friend, Caitlin Doty, called Mortal. It's all about how your fears of death may be preventing you from being present in your life. Check it out at mortalcourse.com. Try one of these suggestions and let me know how it goes. I'd love to hear about your progress and your own questions about how to feel more satisfied with your life. You can call and leave a message at 833-4-LEMONADA. That's 833-453-6662. Or email me at newday at lemonadamedia.com. I really want to hear what you find. Oh, and you can actually join me in person in October for a retreat all about living and dying. Elua and my friend BJ Miller, who is a palliative care physician and a future guest on this show, and myself will all be together at the Art of Living Retreat Center in North Carolina for a two-day, three-night retreat called What Really Matters. You can find out more information at artoflivingretreatcenter.org. And lastly, this episode is dedicated to the memory of my client, whose life and bravery at the end continue to inspire me today. New Day is a Lemonada original. Jackie Danziger is our supervising producer. Our associate producer is Ariana Giles. Kat Yours, our engineer. Music is by Hannes Brown. Executive producers are Stephanie Whittleswax, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Lily Cornell-Silver, and Claire Bidwell-Smith. New Day is produced in partnership with the Wellbeing Trust, the Jed Foundation, and Education Development Center. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing a review. Follow us at Lemonada Media across all social platforms or find me at clairebidwellsmith.com. Join our Facebook group to connect with me and fellow New Day listeners, hear advice on how to live with more purpose and satisfaction, and suggest tools that have helped you. You can join at facebook.com slash groups slash New Day Pod. That's facebook.com slash groups slash New Day Pod. You can also get bonus content and behind the scenes material by subscribing to Lemonada Premium. You can subscribe right now in the Apple Podcasts app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. All right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Lemonada. Last Day from Lemonada Media explores the moments that change us. Those times where you look back and say, whoa, one day I was myself and the next I wasn't. I'm Stephanie Whittleswax, and I have seen time and time again how sharing these stories can change lives. So do you have a moment in your life that changed you fundamentally and forever? What happened? How did you move through it? And how did you eventually start again? If you'd like to share your story, go to bit.ly slash lastdaystories, bit.ly slash lastdaystories. We can't wait to hear from you.
Hello, hello, hello. I am Jose Andres. Maybe you know me from my restaurants or maybe from Wall Central Kitchen, the organization I founded to feed people after disasters. Well, it's time for you to know my podcast, Longer Tables. Each episode, I get to know fascinating people in the most intimate way, through food. Stacey Abrams, Jojo Ma, Jane Goodall, Padma Lakshmi. I will answer questions from listeners too. Join me in building longer tables, not higher walls, wherever you get your podcasts.